0: Good morning, good afternoon, and good night, wherever you're tuning in. We are Slava and Jonathan, bringing you the SideQuest Podcast, where we talk about character development, stories, and all things that are world building. And we occasionally take side quests, because, frankly, that's how conversations work. Just as a reminder, this whole show is spoiler-heavy. So sit back, tune in, and join us on this episode of SideQuest. Good morning, John. Good morning,
1: Slava. How are you doing? I am doing... I'm doing well. <laughs> You're just doing. I'm doing. I'm just doing. Uh, it's been a, a hell of a week. Did you solve world hunger? I did, but then it got screwed up again, so the world's hungry again. Mm. On Thursday afternoon, we, we solved it, and then by Friday morning, it, it all went to hell. What happened? Was it written in the stars? It was written. It was pulsating in the stars. <laughs> it was like a little telegraph from the stars. All
0: right. Well, because you've you've stepped into it, tell us tell us about this pulsating star. Slava learned something interesting this week. He was telling me before the show, and I thought it would, I thought we should share it with you guys.
1: Yeah. So apparently, there is a mysterious blinking light in space that blinks every 21 minutes at us and has been doing so for 35 years. Now, it's not a pulsar, and it's not a what scientists called a magnetized white dwarf because those kind of pulsate, but they pulsate every millisecond or something like that. So mm-hmm. that to us, it seems constant, but with the right technology and instruments, you could tell that they're it's a pulsating light and it's magnetics and all sorts of other scientific stuff that we won't board the audience with that makes it so. But this thing is quite different because it's every 21 minutes, and scientists don't know what it is or why it's doing what it's doing. So, interesting. That's what if it's a, just a fall
0: over on Arrakis just going, Hey,
1: Come on. You know, it could be the war in Arrakis, all the <laughs> explosions that are happening.
0: Just replaying in perpetuity. Just it it goes through and then ends and then starts over.
1: Yeah. Nice. Yes. So the Popular Mechanics article that I read on it also connects this to the Northern Lights. And by say when I say connects, it links to another article by Popular Mechanics and says the mystery is kind of similar to this. So I haven't read that article, so I don't know what the connections the authors make, but this is something out of the ordinary that people have discovered in space. And I'm surprised because I won't say I'm an expert, but I'm a bit of a nerd when it comes to space and all science and all this kind of stuff, so I keep my fingers on a pulse, hence why I was reading Popular Mechanics. Pun intended. This is the first time. first time in the 42 years I've been on this planet that I've heard of a blinking light in the sky. (laughs) Anyway, that's what I learned today. I learned it early this morning, so here we go. What did you learn this week? Earth-related.
0: (laughs) Earth-related.
1: Not space-related.
0: All right, I'll keep us grounded. That's fine. And I think that this is relevant. So this week was one of those learnings that reminds you, like, of lessons that you should always keep at the forefront of your thoughts. And that was, we we had to do some downsizing at work. few folks over in the sales department were pruned from the small startup that I work at, which was rough because they were nice people and stuff. But at the end of the day, business is in for business. And regardless of who you are and what's going on. Businesses can't survive unless they generate income. And so it's just a reminder that in all things that we do, we should be creating value. And if you're not creating value, you need to find a way to create value. And if you can't, then you should shift course, change the rudder of your boat and sail in a new direction. So tough decisions, but uh, it, it reminded me that we regularly need to be creating value, not only for business, but also for ourselves, where if you're doing stuff in life, I was talking with my girlfriend last night because it was like, I don't know, 10 or something. And I was like, I've been in the house all week and I don't get out enough. Let's go do something. But then I think it slowly became 11. We're just sitting on the couch and I'm yawning. She's like, yeah, you want to go out? I was like, what do people do on Friday nights? And she's like, they drink. And I was like, but I don't want to do that. She's like, that's the only thing open. And I was like, I mean, you're right. Can we just go walk around the grocery store or something? And she's like. I mean, if you want to, but I ended up just like falling asleep on the couch, basically. That said, this relates to creating value for your life where it's like, look, going out and drinking is not creating value for my life. It doesn't like spending the money. I'm trying to lose weight right now, some calorie counting. uh, I'm working out. And so like that is anti-value for my current goals. But the same thing applies to whomever you are. You should be generating value. And it doesn't mean you don't, It doesn't mean you have to work as much as I do or, like, do continued education like I'm doing. But you need to know where you're going so that you can determine if your actions are generating value for yourself or not. That was long-winded. Anyway, I was reminded to be present and to stay grounded
1: and generate value in one's own life. That's a good point, Jonathan, because a lot of things happen around us, some good, some bad, but it's always a good idea. When something happens, whatever it is, to take stock of the situation, evaluate it, and do a little self reflection. It couldn't hurt and usually help.
0: I don't think that, no, I know that people don't do enough self reflection based on their actions. So people live out of their values, whether they're aware of their values or not. And by being unaware of your values, it shows evidence and fruit that you are not doing self-reflection to discover what your values are. I have a lot of strong opinions about this, and we do have an episode to do, so I'm going to shelf that. I think that we'll talk about values at a different time in a book that has themes that align with that a little better. So, audience, I encourage you, if you do nothing else this episode, pause the episode as much as I want you to listen. Take 15 minutes and ask yourself, what are my values? Why are those my values? Do I want those values to be passed on to my friends, family, and children? And if the answer is no, set a new course. You have free will. You are the master and commander of your ship, and you get to create the life and build the life that you want to have and get to enjoy. All right, I'll get off my soapbox. Uh, in the news, there's a writer strike going on right now. As many of you are aware, whether or not it's still going on when this gets released, I'm not sure because that's the future, and I'm not Moadib. But the writer strike is going to affect the Dune movie that's coming out. This is relevant to us, because the Dune movie is probably going to get pushed back due to the writer's strike. Commentary says that it's probably a good thing to do that, because the release schedule would not allow Dune to sit in the nicer theaters the way that something like Barbie and Oppenheimer are getting. But That's one piece of news that happened this week. Another piece of news... Oh, oh, sorry. Uh, The writer's strike, for those who aren't aware, because I I did want to mention this, is that the Writers Guild of America, which are the people who write your movies, for those not in the know, are focusing on a labor dispute with the studios about the residuals that come from streaming media. This type of strike happened previously. I want to say it was 2008 that it happened. Does that sound right?
1: 2008? Yeah, well, a quick parenthetical. The first time that the writers and the actors went on strike was led, I think, if I get my trivia correct, if I have my trivia correct, by Ronald Reagan in the 60s. So Whoa, really? Things are happening yet. I don't know the details, but in the scouring of news, this is what I read like huh. a week and a half ago. Um, so the actors are on strike, too. And the the Writers Guild and the Actors Guild, they're both on strike, and the last time that happened was the sixties. And Yeah, so carry on. The uh, the
0: Writers me. average income so so this it, it always comes down to money. That the top is too fluffed with it's too top heavy, too much money at the top for perceivably less value. And I'm gonna I'm gonna try not to go back on my soapbox here, but um The writers are the ones bringing the value, and so it would be imperative, in my opinion, if you want them to continue working, to make sure that their average income is higher than it was a decade ago, not lower, which is what it is right now. So anyway, that's another piece of the news that I wanted to to define, which is pushing the the
1: Dune movie back, part two. Yeah, and we don't have to go on this side quest, but the more and more I learn about how the writers are getting shafted in this thing, I, I'm i infuriated. Yeah. It's just... And then for that, insert really bad expletive here, mm-hmm. from Disney to sit there and complain about how, well, this is just going to make people lose houses, and this is... You know, what they're asking for is untenable and unreasonable. Uh, what?
0: Yeah, it's it's just silly. I, like... I'm currently giving myself a financial education and trying to become wealthy, but there's a point at which it's like, look, you don't need... Well, need is a is an interesting word. I don't think that you can easily justify the, I want to say, obnoxious level of winning that takes place if you make a billion dollars. But on the other hand, like, profits should be used for R&D and expansion. So, anyway. In other news, uh, random... Penguin Random House, which is a publishing company, is doing company-wide layoffs as well, boiling down to money again. But the publishing industry is regularly taking a hit due to how quickly the digital age sprung up and people aren't really reading books anymore. I'm curious to see how this goes. Another piece of information, which this is not like new this week, but it's something that has been talked about since last year, is that Audible is abusing its authors and extorting, for lack of a word, because I don't know another word to explain the way that they really squeeze the profits out of authors. They keep shrinking the amount that an author gets in residuals from audiobooks being purchased. And Audible is a very easy system to use for people, which is nice, because they have this whole credit system, and if you haven't used it, it is very simple. But there are big authors who are starting to move over to Spotify because they get a better cut from the audiobook sales. And Brandon Sanderson is one of them. We read a few of his pieces so far. We'll be reading some more. He is using his clout and authority to help change the audiobook industry, which I think is good. And I'm excited to demonopolize the the audiobook industry as much as I've been using Audible for the last decade. Or more, and have over 600 books on my Audible. I think it's good to try and fight Amazon, but only someone like a Spotify could do that at the moment. And so, he's also working on a uh, working with an, an, a smaller app because his son has, I think, dyslexia, called Speechify, which helps kids with reading issues tie the audiobook and the physical text. Though it's digital so like the digital version like a kindle version helps them learn to read well listening to the audiobook which is pretty cool so if you haven't checked out speechify free shout out to them try to help small businesses even though it's a tech company and sanderson's son and other people with dyslexia so that's a lot in the news that i wanted to cover slava i realized that i was supposed to do the review today but i've been talking a lot so do you want to give us a review of the section yes jonathan why
1: not um thanks so so we have um, what do we have? Chapters. Lots of them. Lots of them. It's yeah, so really we have much, book section, book three, first section, through book three, second section, which depending on the edition you're reading, is chapters 38 through 46. So we have the birth of Aaliyah, which is Jessica's daughter by Leto. Cheney, giving birth to Paul's son, Leto. The Fremen are fearing Aaliyah, because she's a little girl, but because of what happened during the ceremony when Jessica became a mm-hmm. Bene Gesserit, uh, became a Bene Gesserit, excuse me, became the Reverend Mother. She drank this Water of Life, which also gave the daughter in her womb similar abilities as a Bene Gesserit. So she's three years old, but she can talk like an adult, but she has the maturity of maybe a young adult, and that really just freaks out all the Fremen. Fade Ratha tries to kill the Baron, the Baron does not get killed because the Baron is smarter than Fade Ratha uh, to punish sort of. Fade Ratha.
0: He says that... Um, what's what's the, what's the Mentat's name? what? Thank you. what? Because we get that... This is an interesting piece, and we can try to dive into this later, but where he's like, Fade would have gotten me, but Howat saved me. But I don't want Fade to know that.
1: Yep. And... To punish Fade Ratha, he kills his two guards that are loyal to him, or he perceives are loyal to him, and he makes Fade Ratha kill all the women in the harem by his own hand as punishment. And Fade Ratha's like, oh well, that sucks, but if I don't do this, maybe something more subtle will come along and it'll be even it'll be something that's uh, a harder bend for me. We have Paul is being challenged by, by the Fremen to kill Stiglar or to challenge him and kill him so he can become the official leader of the tribe. Oh, Fremen intercept a smuggling operation and find that Gurney Halleck, Paul Old's teacher, is leading it. Halleck mm-hmm. reaffirms his allegiance to Paul. Paul gives the Fremen to accept him, and he's affirmed as Duke, and they are ready to fight a fierce battle. Yes. After falling into a spice induced coma, which he, Paul thought was going to be like a minute or two, ends up <laughs> three weeks, ends up to be three weeks, Paul awakens and speaks about two ancient forces that only he can balance.
0: I look forward yeah, to talking that, about that.
1: Yeah. That's, I know I missed some, even some spicy details. No pun intended, or maybe intended. intended. But why not? And, Okay, pun intended, uh, but that's kind of like the the overview of what's going on. And then there is side quests that all the characters have, internal and external. In between that stuff, and we'll get into some of those. But that's the overview in uh, thirty five awesome. seconds.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I, I just wanted to to more more than thirty five seconds. I just wanted the uh, the audience to not listen to me talk for, like, 15 minutes straight, you know? Because I was trying to cover the news, and I, I was slow with that. Anyway. No S. Next, we're moving into... And Slav and I are really working on trying to make this more entertaining for you guys. So we're trying to make it more punchy. So, what stood out to us in this section? Something that stood out to me is, at the beginning of Book 3, there's a time jump. If you're not paying attention, you'll miss it. So, there's... Uh, a gap in time between the end of book 2 which is really just chapter 37 and then the beginning of book 3 where you fast forward in time which is a nice plot device that could be distracting but it wasn't and I really appreciate that about Frank Herbert and his writing is he never loses sight of the action and the pacing is consistent throughout the entire book so that stood out to me because I've read other books where I want to say, it's not like specifically time jumps, but there's just like a, a, a a hard left in action or a hard left in the plot that takes place. And you're like, oh, you lose pacing. Nope, not in this book. Just keeps on trucking, which is awesome. And then, because I just, I'm, I'm really excited to, to dive into this and, you know, feel free to, to help me string out some questions with this lava. But when you were talking about Paul being in this coma, because he took the waters of life. And he's really embraced this idea that he is the... I want to... Help me out here. The Something... Old what How do you say it? Mo'adib. I, well, Mo'adib call- is, his, is his name, which means mice or mouse. Yeah. But, like, the, the name of the Messiah thing that oh, he is. Yeah, well,
1: five seconds ago, I knew it. Now that you put me in a spot, I forgot. Well, snag it,
0: snag it for me real quick while I'm talking about this thing so paul embraces the waters of life and then he also being a benegesserit and also oh look up the benegesserit version of the messiah thing him being a, a benegesserit as well he converts the waters of life to not be poison just like his mother did but he only took a drop and it took him three and a half weeks <laughs> because he went unconscious yep. so said, quizar oh yeah, oh, a rock. Haderach. yes. So he's really embraced becoming that, which is interesting, where if you feel fate chasing at your door and destiny, and you choose to embrace it, it's interesting to see what happens. But that's not my point. My point is that what Paul does, and what we see throughout the story with the Bene Gesserit, and they're like, well, they can look through all of time, but they don't look through the masculine side is that Paul, being the Quisat uh, Haderach, is that he does embrace both the masculine and the feminine. Somebody else that has addressed this in the real world is Carl Jung. And you've heard me, if you've listened to anything more than this episode, you've heard me talk about Carl Jung before because I am a big fan and think that we need more people to try to help uncover... And push forward the study and industry, I guess I'll call it an industry, that is psychology because humans are so complex that until we have more rigorous data, we won't understand who we are as people. Side quest over on that little bit. But Carl Jung talks about the anima and the animus. What are the anima and the animus? Great question,
1: Slava. I'm glad you asked. So, Hey, what are the animus and the other thing you said? <laughs> great great great
0: question Slava, I'm glad you asked.
1: <laughs> Sorry. Please no, continue. it's fine. I'll see myself out.
0: Yeah. Okay. We'll get Matt back on here. The anima, so Jung has this theory of the unconscious that every being has a an opposite side of themselves uh based on how they were born. So if you're born female, that there's a masculine side internally Called the animus. And then if you're born male, there's a feminine side in your unconscious called the anima. And anima is the Latin derivation, der- derivation, wow. Well, Derivatives? <sighs> yeah, der- derivation of uh, meaning soul. And the animus is a Latin derivation meaning spirit. So women are born with a masculine side of spirit and men are born with a masculine or a feminine side of soul and it is Paul who takes it upon himself as he's becoming the Kwisat Haderach to embrace both sides of that where he is both soul and spirit as one combined and how does he say it in the in the book he's like I'm at the he doesn't say apex he's at the he doesn't say fulcrum precipice is that what he said He's, I think precipice. He's
1: at the crux. Paraphrase it. It's okay.
0: Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I, I'm curious, and I didn't look this up, but I'm curious if Herbert was actually a fan of Young, or he just kind of came up with this on his own. And this is colloquial, so it doesn't necessarily validate Young's theory. But I, I think it's interesting that there's. I, I can't. I can't get away from Young. Young also was the person who came up with the idea of the collective unconscious. So if Herbert came up with this on his own, I think that it does validate the collective unconscious that Young spoke about. Uh, yes, Slava, you're raising your hand at me.
1: I am, but you, you can finish your thought, but I have something interesting to add to exactly what you're saying. No, 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 no dive, dive in. I, 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 All right, yeah. so Paul has now become a Benny Gesserit, which if you believe the internet is Latin for shall have behaved well. That's, that's parenthetical and, and mildly interesting. But the Bene in this in this world, they're a religious and political force, right? Yep. And it's an exclusive sisterhood whose members train their bodies and minds through years of mental, physical, all sorts of other training. You could say spiritual training to obtain superhuman powers. It was one way of putting it. They like we talked about human potential as themes in this book, but it's these things and abilities that seem magical to outsiders or some sort of utterly supernatural to outsiders. So, keeping that in mind, the question here is because we're talking, you're talking about Paul, can Paul become a true Bene Gesserit? Mm -hmm. So, the way that the Bene Gesserit, the females, so one of the ways the sisterhood gathers knowledge and expands, you know, their collective knowledge is through genetic memory of their female ancestors. But they lack a Y chromosome because, you know, they're sisterhood. So this prevents them from having the same access to their male ancestors. So they can't gather the knowledge of their male ancestors. But a male individual capable of mastering the Bene Gesserit's art could become the most powerful being in the universe, because he can master their art, get their memories, and also have access to his male ancestors' memories as well. So whatever happened to Paul in those three weeks with the spice propel them again, just like in the beginning of the book when he's on the thopter and he's mm-hmm. captured, and then they, they escape, him and Jessica, there's this massive shift, like within an hour, and he has surpassed his mother in certain Benny Gesserit, call them, abilities. So what is happening to Paul here is he's truly becoming a male Bene Gesserit. And maybe, maybe that's why the Bene Gesserit, when they tell their you know, sisters who are married to kings and powerful men, try to have a daughter. And they have the ability to force themselves to have a daughter, right? Yeah. But Jessica forced herself to have a son specifically. Mm-hmm. So, wanted to add that to your um, to your comments about Paul and male, female, and all that stuff.
0: Yeah, I'll I'll wrap up with this because I know that there's a bunch more stuff that we wanted to dive into, uh, and then I'll toss it over to you. Is based on Jung's theory, we all have this, and it, I just want to emphasize real quick: it is a theory; it's we're we're lacking more evidence. I want to just repeat that. So, this is not necessarily truth in the capital T objective sense, but it is something that we should be cognizant of and aware of, and I think that a lot of humans go through some sort of questioning of, well, what does it mean to be a man or what does it mean to be a woman, and an unpacking of self, if you will, because it's this unconscious state of yourself that draws you in an opposite direction. This gets into something we spoke about at the beginning of the episode, and by we, I mean me about determining value and determining self and doing self-reflection, but it's learning to mature this side of yourself where it's, it mature and, and maturing by integrating and saying, okay, what is this side of myself asking for? And just coming with curiosity and going, okay, well, why is it asking for that? And then giving it some of that, whatever it's asking within reason and temperance and embracing like what, part of yourself is trying to be more strength and soul and masculine, and what part of yourself is trying to be more feminine and spirit and beauty or artsy or what have you, and integrating both sides of those selves into yourself to become a holistic person like the archetype that Paul is representing in this story. So, all that to say, you're much more capable than you realize You have a lot more ahead of you than you might necessarily give credit to at the moment. But it is only when we pause and reflect and embrace the different aspects of ourselves that we have the opportunity to become mature selves. And this doesn't mean folding to every whim and urge of emotion that we have, but it does mean that it requires digging. And digging means uncovering uncomfortable truths of ourselves to discern what it means to mature toward integration. Anyway, off my little soapbox again. Love Carl Jung. Love what he did for the subconscious and psychology. I don't have a, a strong bridge here, Slava, to talk about one of the things you wanted to talk about, which was folk religions and and danger tied with the the plot here. So,
1: yeah. Well, maybe it's just gonna be a hard, a hard, uh, hard left, a hard left. So something that stood out to me as I was writing my notes and looking at the themes, because, you know, you like plots, I like themes, as was been established a couple of episodes ago. So as I was putting my notes together, and one of the themes is religion and control, something that stood out to me as interesting is as time has passed, and you mentioned there's even a time jump like of two or three years. Yep. So as time has passed, Paul and Jessica have increasingly adopted the Fremen religion and understanding its potential and dangers in doing so. And what I thought was interesting was Paul sees the benefits of using religion and being part of this religion, adopting the Fremen religion, because he sees that religion itself, probably not just the Fremen religion, but his views overall, going back to the worldview conversation, Unites the Fremen with a common purpose. And that purpose for both him and them is to fight and kill the Harkonnens. Religion also gives them an unwavering belief that they will win the war. It gives them the impetus, if you will, to go and fight. Just like the doctor, Kynes, Dr. Kynes, used the same thing, thought the same thing, excuse me, that by uniting the Fremen on one solitary thing to re. Rework the the ecology of Arrakis to make it a flourishing, a flourishing planet. That would probably take generations. He saw religion as being the catalyst for that. Paul sees it the same way, and because the Fremen are a religious people, they have complete trust in Paul, partly because of his mystique, but partly because he's this guy that's fervent too. He believes that using religion or their worldview, their religion, will ultimately bring about all the desired effects of the utopia that they seek. Jessica, on the other hand, sees the religion as a bit dangerous because now not only are they participating in controlling their people to what they believe is the right and moral end, they have adopted the religion full-blown in order to participate in this effort, Jessica sees, just as they use religion to control the Fremen, the Fremen religious controls them. And what's troubling for Jessica is that the younger Fremen are forcing Paul to challenge Stigler, believing that the religious Messiah must be the sole ruler, which Paul later works out for Paul, because he changes their minds on this. Let's put it that way. But the thing that really... Stood out to me, right? Like this little domino effect as I was reading this and then later taking notes on it, is the Fremen's religious superstitions against Aaliyah. So not only were all these guys and gales at the ceremony when it was revealed that yes, Jessica hid the pregnancy, and yes, this is what happens because of that, and yes, that the baby Aaliyah now has the same memories as the as the Reverend Mother and as Jessica becomes a Reverend Mother, and she is infused with this knowledge and these memories that somehow gets the baby. And because the baby is still a child, she has surpassed all the children her age, because she talks like an adult, thinks like an adult, has information to tap into that makes her different. And because of the fervor of their beliefs they find this little girl an abomination to the point where they're telling their, their reverend mother and their Messiah that, hey, you have to kill your, your sister and daughter. So what got me thinking, or the thoughts that came to me, is how many people have we met that are religious, and because they have no knowledge, they have zeal without knowledge— they go off and think and do insane things. (laughs) And you and I both know some people that are like rabid anti-Catholics because they think that Catholicism somehow, from the pits of hell, it can not bring forth anything good. And, of course, the Pope is the Antichrist, and that's it. It's Babylon, Mm -hmm. uh, the great whore. So... We all know this book. We, we both know these people. but And we knew them about 10 years ago. And so about 10 years ago, I ran across this book. It was uh, just on the free table of the seminary. I found out real quickly why it was just put on the free table of the seminary and it wasn't part of the library. Written by a guy named Alexander Hislop. He lived in the early 1800s. And the central argument of this book is that the Catholic Church is the Babylon in the book of Revelation, which is problematic already, and we won't get into a theological debate on what the events of the book of Revelation are and when they happened and what they mean symbolically. He did all the research and said, here's everything the Babylon did, and then he said, here's what all the Catholics, that they do, to make those connections is almost anti-scholarly. And... Irrespective of what anybody thinks of the book or who Hislop was, the fact that now these people that the, I'm talking about had a sledgehammer that proves their views, it went off into La La Land. Folk religion is dangerous. And by folk religion, I mean stuff that's superstitious, stuff that's not based on any sort of dogma or theology or logic or tested philosophy. I'm one who does not reject religion at all, and I think religion, sh- religion should be part of the public marketplace of expression and ideas and all that stuff. But how dangerous fanatic- fanatical religion is, or folk religion, which can turn into f- fanaticism, and before anybody starts clapping in the audience, That's if you're an atheist or an agnostic or a secular materialist, you two have your own religion. You just don't know it and refuse to recognize it. And you do have your own fanatics and what I would call folk adherents. The same people will say Jesus wasn't real. He's some sort of copy of some Egyptian god. But I have this crystal. It makes me feel better when Uranus is in retrograde, and I do you know I do reverse cat yoga and meditate on Vishnu. So and I know a true secular atheist wouldn't would think all of that is crazy too but I'm saying we all have forms of worship we all have a religion for lack of a better term but we must be careful of the fringe because it's easy to it's easy to fall that way if you're not constantly reevaluating things or self-reflection continuously learning to use some of the stuff that you keep saying in our episodes so
0: on the the idea of, of folk religion and cults and humans just being human humans don't appreciate mystery the way that they did in the past and so they need to find the answers to everything this is where like conspiracy theories come from which is why it's a little bit wild to think like oh, okay, Tommy, like, yeah, you've discovered that, you know, X, Y, and Z is going on that no one else has thought of or no one else could figure out but you. Good job, Tommy. Are some of those things true? Usually. Like, all wild stories are based on some sort of thread of truth. The opacity, I guess I would say, of the truth, the weight of the truth is subject to scrutiny, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's capital T objective truth because you figured it out with your conspiracy theory or your folk religion or whatever. But getting back to something that I spoke about earlier is Young talks about religion as well. He was raised Christian and then disavowed it. And then I believe it's in the Red Book, which you just picked up recently and you're going to dive into here shortly, which is wild. It's just a very crazy ride. The Red Book is like the journey of Jung's dive into his own subconscious and the journaling that takes place from there. And he talks to some very, very strange entities, some of which I believe is his subconscious, some of which I believe are angels, demons, and the Lord at one point. But it's interesting. It's just wild. But he, he has this discovery when he's on his journey as he says he lost his religion, which is fair, whatever, but he was no longer human because he didn't have religion. Jung says that the religious function is a person uh, the religious function in a person is as strong as the as an instinct for gender or aggression. He says that it's a profound psychological response to the unknown, both the inner self and the outer world. Even though he didn't subscribe to Christianity anymore, he understood that to be human you have to have a religion to to your point from an exterior source who doesn't uh, subscribe to Christianity. And and I think it gets into this piece here is like, we're uncomfortable with mystery. Hard stop. We're uncomfortable with the unknown. We're uncomfortable with chaos. We, we want to make sense of the world, which is normal. It's part of being human. Like, well, I need to make sense of what's in front of me so that I can make the best decision. Yes. Agreed. However, mystery is also beautiful and wonderful and to be given space and awe and to give, to, to be given, to be received in as is, and to be received with reflection as well. But mystery is uncomfortable. Mystery is not easy. Mystery is dangerous. Mystery is wild in every sense of that word. It's like if you came across a herd of wild mustangs roaming the countryside, you're not approaching them willy-nilly unless you want to get trampled. Like, you don't know, are they going to be kind to you? Are they going to trample you? Are they going to try and bite your head off? Like, you don't know. And so you observe the wild beauty that is mystery. Anyway, I think that Young, not Young, sorry, Herbert, the author of of Dune here, does a really good job of embracing mystery while allowing the characters to have questions and also directly tie themselves into the narrative that is fate. And I mean, it's a story and maybe we're just kind of out here lollygagging around that's what stories
1: are for yeah to be be dissected
0: yeah and we've been doing it for generations with starting with oral story but oh what one one last thing i wanted to, to mention based on what you said earlier is with that book and catholicism and catholics being demons or whatever you mentioned it's like causation does not equal correlation and what does that mean um you've probably heard it before maybe you haven't but correlation does not Sorry, correlation does not imply causation. That's the correct, whatever. What that means is that two variables, so two different incidences, so you've got, you know, this guy's theories and then, like, paganism versus Catholicism, so two data points. Uh, just because they move in the same direction does not instantly mean that they are up- connected. It's like if you get a cold, like but the moon was rising, like, oh, man. Moon was rising, so I got a cold. Like, right, okay. Right, yeah.
1: That... Does not mean that evil proto Catholic evil priests, or then actually Catholic priests of the early Catholic Church, went through you know the libraries of Babylon and all the evil books and said, "Ha ha! Here's how we're gonna subvert the name of Christ and mes- besmirge besmirge Christianity forever." Woohoo! You win. Like that's that's a ridiculous statement. <laughs> like to yeah. make, and th- that he doesn't make that statement, but that's kind of like the. Assertion he makes if you read in between the lines of, and I read parts of the book, because uh, I, I couldn't put it down. Well, right, no, I heard these people reference this book, and then I saw it in the throwaway pile. I was like, all right, let's let's dive into this. And as you start reading it more and more, oh, yeah, the point he's making is loony to nonsense. So let's, I mean, we don't we don't have enough time to dive
0: into a, a few of these other points we had listed down. So let's let's stay on this trail for just a minute. How would you suggest, folks? defend against folklore religion like how do you consider going out to find additional data points how do you what questions are good to ask what you know i don't really know how to describe this but like we have listed down as one of the themes is religion and control paul and jessica have adopted fremen religions to benefit them but there's also dangers there they, they've found a unity to fight fight against the harkonnens But the the religion that they have adopted is also a control over them as well, because to be a part of a system is to also at least partly submit to a system. So there's the danger of being controlled by the religion. So how does one both embrace the the beauty of religion and tradition and something like that while still defending against tyranny,
1: if you will? It's... It's a bit of a minefield in today's society, a culture, to ask that question, because you'll have people who either, you know, foam in the mouth, chest beating, will reject any sort of religion as cuckoo, and those will say, well, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, can do whatever you want, and just live and let live. Coexist, bumper sticker, because you do not understand any intricacies of all the religions, the symbols of the religions and the coexist bumper sticker that are used to make the word coexist. And I'm not against coexisting with other religions. I'm saying your worldview and your the intent behind what you're saying is ludicrous. It's not based in any reality because all those religions have a system, a philosophy, a logic to them. They all are bred out of a worldview. And those worldviews at times are contradictory to each other. And on some points, wildly contradictory. Yes, Jews and Muslims and Christians believe that you should love your neighbor and be kind and love God and honor him and honor you know those around you. But their view of how you get to heaven, to use five-year-old language, wildly different. Completely different. Their views on Jesus, completely different. So all that to say, when you guys are doing what Jonathan has uh, asked you to do, kind of thinking about this, make sure that everything is in your own mind. Like, you're like, okay, my values, as Jonathan has said, my worldview. Make sure definitions, categories, and logic is is followed. So and that'll help you reassess yourself too. How do how do I Adhere to a particular worldview, and how do I do an internal critique of it so I can still be bound to the traditions of it and the good things? But if I see something off to the side with crazy, you know, Hisslop, how do I balance that out? Uh, Jonathan, we're pushing an hour, and I think if this goes a little bit longer, it's okay. But one thing I did want to talk about is power and suffering. It's another theme here. And how unforgiving life is on Arrakis, or even just for these royal families, because it started before Arrakis, right? The notes I have here is Fade, no, not Faith, Fade, Fade, Fade Rafa, Fade Rafa, trying to assassinate the Baron. The Baron finding it out and going, eh, he's the only guy I, I, I know they can take my spot and I can control. So I'm gonna let him go, but I'm gonna kill two of his guards that I believe are loyal to him. And then I'm gonna make him kill all the women in his harem by his own hand.
0: Yeah, but that is
1: insane. <clears throat> it just shows how conniving and evil the Baron is. And then we fast forward little. Spoiler alert: We fast forward to him in the last chapter, and he's a cowering little baby in front of the Emperor. So everybody <laughs> has somebody stronger than them. You're, you're not. The, yep. No matter how tough you are, you're not the tough. You're not that tough. So that. And how the Baron sacrifices uh, Raban Because I'll make him the evil guy. He'll get overthrown. And then I'll put in this guy. And it's just this unforgiving world of Dune. And I haven't read the other books. But the view we get, the little snippet we get of Dune, and we get royal families and we get desert folks that are not that royal and are poor uh, mm-hmm. by, compar- by comparison, right? And from top to bottom it is an unforgiving universe
0: yeah i similarly haven't read the other books but would be interested in knowing if we go and dive into other planets because i think that it's there's a lot of opportunity here and i know that there's like 16 books but at least from glancing at the titles it seems like it all takes place on arrakis could be wrong we
1: could at least do the trilogy.
0: Well, we got a lot of books in the docket. I'm open to it. There's actually... I was reading this week that the guy who's making the Dune movies is probably going to do Dune Messiah and then Children of Dune. So, like, do the trilogy. Maybe I'm wrong on the books uh, in the order. Yeah,
1: that's Dune Messiah and Children of Dune. I think you're right. Children of Dune, yeah. So, that's, um, that's a possibility
0: on the docket. I think that it will depend on how much money they earn from the second movie Uh, but you know if they (laughs) if they don't push it back then they probably are going to make less but you know
1: yeah but this unforgiving landscape if you will both figurative and literal like we've said before, affects the people and they affect the landscape. It's a the ecosystem that Herbert was fond of discussing. But both Baron and Paul kind of understand the necessity of violence to an end, as a means to an end. And Paul is more reluctant to it, right? And the Baron is a willing participant in the violence. Mm-hmm. He, he sees it as the natural course where Paul... Even though he's going to blow up the planet, he does it not because he's some you know psychopath, but he sees this the only way to get into guild and the emperor. To, and maybe it's a bluff.
0: Which, uh, which is very much like our world. The world is unforgiving. You don't deserve anything. I I understand that people do hold that to be that belief to be true, but the world doesn't believe that you deserve anything. I think is a better way to say it. Actually, you know, people say. Mother Nature is a um, a fickle mistress. But if you go live in the wild, mountain lions who are going to eat you or bears or creatures of the night, insects, like, they don't care. You don't deserve anything to them. It's just nature coming after you. And it is super dangerous. And it's a bit of an unpopular opinion today, but humans should be more dangerous. Because only when you're more dangerous than your surroundings are you able to actually protect? Um, Now, some people don't do that. They don't choose to protect when they become dangerous or powerful, but they choose to be tyrants. And that is a, a whole nother thing that is looked at here throughout the book because I would say that it's pretty easy to show Paul is someone who is forced into situations that make him choose to become powerful or weak. He chooses to become powerful and then he takes on people who are more powerful who have become tyrants. But the, uh, and I don't think that we prepared for this, but to discuss where's the line between powerful and benevolent and powerful and tyrant.
1: Well, the simple answer, I'm going to sound like a broken record, it's the it's your worldview. And it's not that black and white. There, The good people can be, could fall into a gray area. It could even make grave mistakes. But, If you can do a critique of a person's worldview, philosophy, and actions, and goals, you can say, okay, Leto might not have been the greatest guy in the world, but he certainly wasn't the baron. And the only way you can make the distinction is objective truth. And be willing to say that, yeah, Leto has made mistakes, and... And Roxy, Roxy apparently disagrees. She thinks Leto's great. Yes. Yep. But, at the end of the day, if you find yourself an Arrakis, figurative or literal, get yourself a woman like Chaney. Because, keeping the drumbeat of Slava finding himself attracted to female characters in books, Chaney... Some guy calls out her man, and she goes and stabs him in the face. I kind (laughs) of like it. Uh, You know, dusts off her apron, puts baby Lado down, and gives him a pacifier. He takes a crisp knife and stabs a a bastard in the face. I kind of like Chaney. Chaney's my kind of gal. And then when Paul gets all butthurt about it, she's like, hey, shut up. Now people know that your woman can kick anybody's ass, too. So keep quiet and go do Duke stuff. I like it. I like it. And then he's like, okay.
0: It's <laughs> not exactly he likes how it, it went too. Down, but all right. Because all right.
1: he likes it, too. Fair enough, fair enough. That's my assessment of things, and I am correct.
0: <laughs> well, that's the episode today, folks. Next episode, we will wrap up Dune. Please stay tuned for that. Oh, Roxy's. Roxy's here.
1: Yes. Hi, Roxy.
0: That one's Roxy, right?
1: That one's Roxy.
0: Okay, uh,
1: Roxy read books. We're gonna get her on the podcast. Roxy, broadcast. yeah, Roxy does read books, but only evil books, like the ones you sent me in the. Oh, good. In, on Instagram. That's Perfect. why she's psychotic. Oh, good, good, good. Uh, yeah, so that's it. That's the episode. Stay
0: tuned for episode five. This one's five. This one's, this five. one's five. Well, part uh, five, not episode part five. five.
1: Episode like thirty something. Thirty-five.
0: Well, stay tuned for next time as we wrap up dune and then in our final episode we will have two guests on like we well we're gonna have two guests on but we always do guests you know at the end there so thanks for tuning in and slava tell us where we can find the side quest podcast on socials and stuff
1: we are on tiktok and instagram at the SideQuest podcast and we're also on spotify which is where we have our podcast hosted we're also on apple and Google, but most of our listeners on Spotify. So
0: mm-hmm. for
1: you guys on Spotify, go to the episodes and answer our questions. The The most basic question there is, how'd you like this episode? Or what'd you think about this episode? Drop us a note there, tell us what you thought. Also suggestions for books. We're always looking for suggestions. Now we have the next month or two planned out, but it doesn't mean that we won't adjust or put your book on the docket for us to talk about. So for me... That's the most important thing. To give us ideas. Give us feedback. We want to engage with you. And we are we are on YouTube too, but we're just building that out. It's SideQuest Podcast on YouTube. Um, we're testing those waters. But if you want to give us a like there, you'll be ready when we launch it. That's right. All right. Until next time, wanderers, we'll catch you on
0: SideQuest.